Oh, this is our new series, Challenge Accepted, Jesus putting a challenge in front of us. Who needs a Bible? We're going to be in Matthew chapter 16 today. Bill will bring one right to you. You just got to raise your hand. And uh, so put your hand high. They will bring one to you. You can keep it if you want to, but we want you reading God's Word. And so please turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. Jesus, as you know, if you've been tracking it all through the book of Matthew with us, has been doing miracles, lots of miracles. And he's been teaching about the kingdom of God. And the crowds have just been getting larger and larger and larger. They've been mushrooming. And he's become quite a celebrity. In fact, he gets so recognized by people everywhere that he finally said, I got to take some vacation, get a little time off. So he went to Tyre and Sidon, which are on the Mediterranean coast outside of Israel just to get a little vacation. But even there, he got recognized. And uh, so if you were to look at the crowds around him, of course, he's got uh, friends and his disciples, the ones that are fully devoted followers. And then there were lots of people there who were there just to see something's going to happen. I've heard about this guy. And when he talks and, uh, you know, people get healed and uh, amazing things happen, just a whole bunch of looky-loos. And then there's people who need a miracle or they have somebody they know who needs a miracle that they've gone and gotten and brought with them. And so the crowds have gotten just larger and larger. They've gotten to the point where it's caught the attention of the religious leaders down in Jerusalem which is 50 to 75 miles south of where Jesus was at the time. That's where in Jerusalem is where the high priest and his cohorts hang out. You know, the Pharisees and Sadducees lived and worked there. And uh, most of Jesus' miracles and teaching was up in the north. And uh, so to have Pharisees and Sadducees show up in Galilee would be most unusual. It's kind of like they're the temple police. Now, I don't plan to go into the differences between the Sadducees and Pharisees, but the short version is, they hated each other. And so if they ever saw their names put together with an and in between, like Pharisees and Sadducees, that would be objectionable to everybody. Kind of like if you said, well, you know, I saw at a funeral, I saw the Trumps and the Clintons and the Bushes and the Obamas together. They were all, you know, well, it doesn't mean any love was lost. What it means is that these two groups... Uh, hate each other, but they have a, a, a larger threat, a common enemy that they see as threatening their power structure. So they're working together uh, to see if they can figure out how to eliminate Jesus. Well, in Jesus' day, these people have heard the scriptures that talk about a coming Messiah and a long-promised, long-awaited, the man, really, the one who can be the Savior and the Deliverer and the Hope of Israel and about 75 other titles that he's given uh, in the Old Testament. And, and so they're anxious and they are eager. They are looking for who might fit that bill. And Jesus certainly had an awful lot of the qualifications that they knew that they were looking for. And the Pharisees and Sadducees, are this upper-class, wealthy, educated, influential power brokers. They're the ones who've studied the law and the prophets, memorized it, really. They're able to argue the finer points with each other or with you or with anybody else or the leading rabbis of their day, and they have fully engaged their heads into God's Word, but not their hearts. And they come to Jesus. It says in Matthew 16, 11, the Pharisees and Sadducees come and to test him, they asked him, show us a sign from heaven. Now, it's a simple question, really. Show us a sign from heaven. We want to see a sign or a miracle from heaven or from God. So do something spectacular with the implication. If you do something spectacular, we know only it's from God. Then we'll know you're from God. And um, then we'll believe in you. Now, did you ever pray like they just prayed to Jesus? Jesus. 
you know, God, would you, Jesus, would you do an extra spiritual, special miracle for me? I need a healing or I need a job or I have a family member, a friend, a loved one that has something that we're praying about and I'm praying for something that seems impossible to me, but if you'll do that, well, then I'll believe in you. I'll respect you. I'll love you. I'll follow you. I'll serve you with my whole life. Well, Jesus' ability to do miracles didn't need any additional validation. I mean, by this point in the book of Matthew, he's already recorded over 20 miracles that Jesus has done. Do you think miracle number 21, if the first 20 didn't convince um, the Sadducees and Pharisees, do you think miracle 21 was going to be the one to convince them? Probably not. And and uh, tip the scale in Jesus' favor. I mean, in another passage, Jesus is sharing a parable, which is a story with a point. It's recorded in Luke 19. He's telling about a rich man who had a, a poor man named Lazarus who hung outside his, his house or his compound, the, the walls around his house. And they ended up both dying, and uh, the rich man has died, and he's in torment. And he can see that the poor man Lazarus is with Father Abraham. And so he says, you know, would you please send him down here with a drip of water on his finger to touch my tongue because I'm in torment. And Abraham says, no can do because there's a great gulf that's between us. He said, well, then would you please send him back home and have him warn my five brothers because they do not want to come here. It's way worse than I thought. And um, he says, well, he says, they've got Moses and the prophets. They got the law and the prophets. They got the Bible is what he's saying. Let them read the Bible. The Bible is God's word. It tells us what you should do. It tells you how you need to repent and to get right with God. Just have them read the Bible and just do what it tells them. And he goes, oh, no, no. If they, if, if they had somebody who came back from the dead, then they will listen. And to which Jesus replied, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So here in Matthew 16, the very people who are the best students of Moses and the prophets are looking for more assurance than you find in God's Word. That's kind of ironic, isn't it? They've got the God's Word, Moses and the prophets, a short version of saying the Old Testament. And um, these are the people who have it memorized, but they come looking to say, we know all that. It's not enough. We've got to have a miracle besides. Show us a miracle. So what's the problem with their question? I mean, I've asked God for miracles before, haven't you? And what's the difference? I got thinking about this, and here's the best I could come up with. Well, you know, for my part, I'm already in love with Jesus, completely. I, I believe that Jesus was God, and he was born of the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem, and he lived, and he taught us how to live, and he died an atoning death on the cross. He lived an innocent life, then his, his blood covers my sin and your sin, if you ask him. And uh, so we can stand before God and God will say, not guilty. And I believe that Jesus has a very specific purpose for my life and for every person's life. And I believe that the moment when I die, I will step from here into the presence of our Savior in heaven. And I will hear God say, well done, welcome home. Now, so I'm going to ask for miracles, but I'm in love with Jesus already, is my point. With or without any miracles, I'm in love with Jesus. If he says no or if it seems to take him too long to answer, he's in charge of the universe. I've put him in charge in my life. I'm encouraging you to do the same thing. I'm, I'm not placing a miracle as a precondition, Jesus. If you do this miracle, then I will love you. That's what these religious leaders were doing. If Jesus, you've got to do a miracle to impress us if we're going to say that you're from God. I mean, it really comes down to the condition of the heart. These people have exercised their minds to know God's Word. 
but they've let their hearts atrophy with a lack of faith. So you have to have both. I mean, it's the same heart, same, these are the same hard-hearted leaders who later taunted Jesus while he hung on the cross, dying for the sin of the world. And they said to him, hey, <laughs> save yourself. Come down from the cross and we will believe on you. He didn't jump off the cross. He could have. They basically were saying, you can't do it. You don't have the power. He did have the power. He was capable of getting off the cross, but he had a bigger goal in mind. His, he was intent on completing the work that God had given him to do in his life and in his death by dying for the sin of the world. But three days later, when he's been put in the grave and everybody said, there, he's dead and he's gone, he came back from the dead. That was a huge miracle. So at that point, these scoffers who had basically said, do this little miracle, come off the cross, then we'll believe in you. When they, they didn't turn from scoffers to believers just because he came back from the dead. They knew that a miracle had been done from God, but they tried to hide the miracle. They paid the guards money to keep quiet, and they used their influence to discount Jesus and to persecute anybody who came out as one of his followers. They knew that Jesus was the man sent from God, and they rejected him with all their might because their minds had been made up in advance. Their hearts were hardened, and they had any evidence that, that their preconceived notions were wrong or it challenged their belief of who was in charge in their life, would just tighten their knot of disbelief. They completely missed it because they had decided in advance. Well, what's the takeaway for us? They were students of God's Word. We need to be students of God's Word, seriously studying God's Word. Learn all you can. And in the same moment, keep your heart humble and open and pliable to what God's wanting to do, to take time to listen to God and engage your mind and your heart, and then joyfully follow where He leads, even if it's a tough assignment. If we've already made up our mind to say, I'm in charge in my life, I will listen to that stuff if it seems interesting, then, or if there was a demonstrative miracle, then my mind might be changed. Well, then even a miracle like somebody rising from the dead isn't going to change a heart of stone. So back to Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees. They come to him, they say, do a sign. Show us a sign. And he answers like this, verse 2. When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it'll be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. What are the signs of the times? Now, they lived at an unusual time. Since Adam and Eve, for thousands of years there, there was a period of time where God was sending prophets giving hope, giving a word that says, a Savior is coming, a Savior is coming. In Genesis 3, right from the time when, the, when sin entered the world and there was the fall of men and women into sin, the breaking of the relationship with God, beginning in that chapter, God began to promise a Savior is coming. And all through the prophets, they're, they're, it's being promised. It's going to be here. It's going to be like this. It's going to have these character qualities, and this is what's going to happen. So all of this had been prepared, and now these scoffers are standing there actually talking to Jesus, who is that person that God sent. And they don't see it. The sign of the times. He says, you are standing, basically he says, you are standing in the presence of the Almighty God, and you don't even know it. 
that one greater than Jonah is here. One greater than Solomon is here are some of the things that he said. I mean, he, the sign of the times is your life isn't going to last all that long. You're a mist. You're a vapor. And you think, I'm going to keep this control of my life. You're not going to keep it, and you're not going to keep it very long. And you'll pay a high price for taking it instead of just saying, God, you take charge of my life. You be the one in control. And Jesus goes on to say, you're an evil and adulterous generation that seeks for a sign. You don't want to just take God at His word and read His word and to say, based on God's word, here's how I need to change my life. What is it about us? What makes it so attractive about evil? I mean, basically, we have been sold a lie. The lie is that life would be better outside of God's protection and blessing and outside of God's plan than inside his plan, and inside the boundaries of his protection and blessing. It comes from the evil one. It was the same lie that was sold to Adam and Eve in the garden as they're looking at the tree, and God said, don't touch it, and the serpent comes along and says, what did God say? They said, well, God said, don't touch it. He says, oh, do you really think he meant that? I mean, oh, come on. Can you really trust God? And they go on and on and on with this. He, he pushes them on this theme of saying, you can't trust God. You, you just really live if you could get outside of the boundaries that God's placing on you. They're so confining. He says, no sign is going to be given to you except the sign of Jonah. Well, the sign of Jonah, what's that? Jonah was this Old Testament prophet. He's used in a dramatic way by God, but he missed out on all the blessings. He never really joined God. He never joyfully did what God asked him to do. I mean, there's, there's a little book in the Old Testament, Jonah. You usually miss it unless you go looking for it. It's only three or four chapters long. And God comes to this guy named Jonah and says, Jonah, he says, I'm concerned about these people in Nineveh. I need somebody to go tell them to repent or they are really all going to perish because of the sin that they're getting into. Jonah hated the people of Nineveh. Think of the people that you like the least. That would be the very bottom of the list. I mean, uh, if you could say it in church, you hate them. They're not like you. They don't eat food like you. They don't smell like you. They don't talk like you. They don't interact like you. You, you can't stand them. They're just different than you are. There's people like that in the world, you know. And Jonah, for Jonah, it was the people in Nineveh. And God says, I gotta, somebody's got to go tell them, repent or you'll perish. And Jonah says, I hate them. I want them to be punished. I want them to perish. And so he goes to Joppa to get on a boat. And instead of going to Nineveh, which is 106 miles that direction, he gets on a boat to Tarshish, which is 3,546 miles in that direction. He says, God... I'm not one to do it. Well, you know the story. God sent a great big storm. He's out there. It's the perfect storm because the only point is to convince Jonah to do the right thing. The sailors don't understand this. They are tossing everything overboard. They think their lives are in danger. They do not think they are going to survive this. Jonah's down sleeping in the bottom of the boat. They go wake up and say, Jonah, get out of here. We are perishing. This boat's about to go down. And he said, well, throw me overboard and everything will calm down. They go, no, we're not going to try that. And, and they are... Uh, more gracious than Jonah is. And finally he says, you got to toss me overboard. And so when they do, then all the water just goes calm. So it's the sign of Jonah perhaps that he was willing to give his life so that other people could, could live. Well, you know the story. God sent a great fish or a whale or something that is so big that was swimming out there. Came and just swallowed him in one gulp and he had a, a three-day timeout in the belly of this fish. And uh, I'm not sure quite well about those accommodations or, you know, how you'd get enough to eat or to drink or to, um, 
Uh, well, anyway, we don't have to think about it too much, fortunately. But when the fish finally burped him out on the beach, um, three days later, I mean, if you had lost somebody at sea for three days, you would be convinced they are gone. They are not coming back. So this was like a coming back uh, from the dead. And Jonah had nothing left. I mean, he'd been in the belly of this fish. And the only thing that he had left, unfortunately, was his hard heart. Because God says to him a second time, go to Nineveh and preach repentance. So Jonah thinks, okay, if i got to go to Nineveh and preach repentance, I'm going to go there and I'm going to preach it. And I don't think he did it with any, uh, you know, any winsomeness. He didn't tell any stories. He didn't have any quotes. He didn't have anybody, any pictures on the screen. He just walked through town and said it took him three days to walk from one side to the other and to preach repentance. Basically, he said, you know what's coming your direction? Repent or you'll perish. Repent or you'll perish. Repent or you'll perish. In 40 days, if you haven't repented, God's going to get you. Ha ha. Because <laughs> that's what he wanted to have happen. And it says he went, he sat on the edge of town and he looked down at him and said, okay, God, go ahead and start the show. I can hardly wait. There's got to be a few fireworks in on this one. They've got to, he's got to light them up. And you know what? God took that, the pathetic preaching of Jonah and linked it to his Holy Spirit and zipped it to those people's hearts and they knew they had to do something. And they began to repent in droves. They had one little warning from one little prophet. Children of Israel, on the other hand, had all five books of Moses, all the law and the prophets, and they had hard hearts. And these people began, I mean... Uh, they, look what they did. They started to pray. They started to cry. They started to genuinely repent. They stopped working. They stopped eating. They started praying. They put on sackcloth. They sat down in the ashes. I mean, you couldn't show you were any more brokenhearted than by doing that. The king heard about it, that this was happening out there. And instead of saying, wait a minute, I didn't authorize that, he, it says he stood up. He got down from his throne. He took off his robe, set it aside. He went and sat in his own ash pile, and he got in his own sackcloth. And then he said, oh, we're, we're sending out a decree. And he sent out a decree to everybody. Here's what it says, Jonah chapter 3, verse 7. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, let them, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Well, you've read ahead, so you already know what happened when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Wow, isn't that great? The guy preaches, repent, turn to God, or you're going to perish, because that's a still a true story to this day. We need to get right with God, and if you've never done that, then today, pretend you heard Jonah, because he sure, sure seemed to know how to get the message through. Repent, or you'll perish. Get right with God. It was great. People turned to God, and God forgave them. The next verse is rather disconcerting. It, Jonah 4.1 says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was furious. <laughs> hey, God, wait a minute. I hate those people, and you said they would perish if they didn't repent. Now, I preached, but they weren't supposed to repent. They were supposed to perish. And God says to him, I had to care about them. They don't even know their left hand from their right hand. 
The sign of Jonah was referenced earlier in the book of Matthew in chapter 12. In fact, Pastor Micah preached about it October 28. What is the sign of Jonah? I always thought it was the three days and nights in the belly of the fish. He's lost at sea, presumed dead, and then he comes back alive after three days. Jesus did that. You know, he's in the belly of the earth for three days, three nights, came back. Or was it offering himself as a sacrifice for the sailors to give his life for theirs? Jesus did that. You know, he gave his life for you and for me. He died so that we could live. Or was it preaching repentance, calling people to repent, and they do. Get right with God, watching tens of thousands of people repent and turn to God. Jesus did that as well. He preached and said, repent and get right with God. See, the lesson you can learn from Jonah is you can serve God. You can do what God tells you to do and still have a hard heart. Jonah did. He had his arm twisted behind his back to get to Nineveh. He knew that he didn't have any other choice, so he went. He was told he had to preach and he didn't want to, but he did it. He was hoping they were going to be punished. He was mad when they weren't. And in the process, you showed he wasn't really a fully devoted follower, was he? Partnering with God means you put God in charge and you follow joyfully. Hardness of heart insists on staying in charge in your own life, but it will cost you something. You miss out on the togetherness with God, of working with God. You miss out on the blessings. I think Jonah missed all the blessings. Simply because he didn't say, God, you are in charge. I serve you. I'm following you. He still wanted it done his own way. And that's exactly what these Pharisees and Sadducees are trying to do in Jesus' day. They've got all the head knowledge, but they've never let God rule and reign in their heart. And God says it's in the heart. In fact, just in the previous chapter, Matthew 15, Jesus said, this people honors me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. And God isn't fooled. When we put on a big show, when we say all the right words, when we sing all the right songs the right way, but our heart is a long, long way from God. One greater than Jonah was in their midst, but their hearts were hard. So they missed the man. They missed the Messiah. They missed the Savior, the promised one. Don't miss the man. It's Jesus. And he loves you. So on one hand, Jesus is dealing with these brilliant but hard-hearted religious people. And on the other, he's got his little band of disciples. God, they must have really tested his patience. I mean, the religious leaders knew how to read the sky. But Jesus had said, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you don't know how to interpret the sign of the times. Problem is, they weren't thinking in spiritual realms. They were thinking in, in physical realms. They weren't thinking that time is short before I stand before my maker to give an account for my life, and that most of my efforts and most of my investments are here and now rather than having a godly, eternal perspective, that I'm doing something that's going to have eternal significance. That's what's exciting to me about this book study that we're looking at today. We're talking about how do we as a church be more fruitful for Jesus Christ? where it really matters. You don't have to read the book to come be part of the conversation. How do we be more fruitful? How do we say God is wanting to reproduce through us? He's wanting us to see new believers, new disciples, new people who are fully devoted, followers. How do we be more fruitful? The disciples have the same problem, really. I mean, and we could get caught in the same trap. 
that we think about ourselves or our current situation or the physical world around us instead of thinking God's thoughts and God's way and living by God's priority. Look at the disciples' faulty reasoning. It says, when the disciples, verse 5, when the disciples reached the other side, remember Jesus had done this miracle of feeding 7,000 people with se- or 4,000 people with men with, and plus women and children with seven little loaves uh, of bread. And then he had put the disciples on a boat and said, Get a, go across the lake. And so then he's arguing with the Pharisees and Sadducees. It says, when the disciples reached the other side, they'd forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, that had absolutely nothing to do with the fact that the miracle they had just seen, or even though there's leaven in bread, or that uh, anything that they hadn't brought any bread with them. It had to do with what, we'll get to the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, but the disciples began discussing among themselves, like, oh my goodness, uh uh-oh, we brought no bread. We thought he wouldn't notice, but he's probably hungry. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you have little faith. Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive yet do you not remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Which the answer was, how many baskets? How many? Twelve. Or for the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? And the answer was, seven. How is that that you fail to understand? I did not speak about bread. Now, the disciples love Jesus with all their hearts. Their hearts are in the right place. But he's challenging them in a different way with the Pharisees and Sadducees. He says, Soften your hearts. What's going on in your hearts? With the disciples, their hearts are in the right place. He's going, think. Use your brain. Breathe through your nose. Get some oxygen up there. Think about it. I'm not talking about bread because we don't have any snack on board for our lake crossing. I'm thinking bigger than that. The the. The leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Leaven, of course, was, you know, you take a little bit of leaven from the previous loaf where you're making bread because leaven rises and, and it, it rots. And it, um, in the process of that, it causes the bread to rise and to look better and to taste better. And, and Jesus, so is kind of in exasperation saying, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees because they've let this little thing on the inside rot and it's, it's changed them, not in a positive way. And Jesus is going, seriously, guys? I'm, I'm grieving people that I just talked to who are so hard-hearted. They are so far from God and God loves them. And God created them. And God made them smart. And they've chosen to be proud and hard-hearted and lost and far from God. Don't be like that. Don't, don't have the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood he's not talking about bread. He's talking about the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, thinking that smarts will get you there, that just knowing and studying and memorizing God's Word is enough. It's not. The Apostle Paul, who's an ex-Pharisee, said this in 1 Corinthians 8. He said, we know that all of us possess knowledge, and this knowledge puffs us up makes us proud of ourselves. But love builds up. If anyone imagines he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he's known by God. Remember Jesus had said to his disciples, everybody will know your mind if you know everything. No. If you have perfect theology. No. He 
said, if you love one another, if you treat each other with compassion and respect and kindness and a humility towards one another. And the Pharisees and Sadducees were really smart and they knew it, but they had these hard hearts and they thought it didn't matter so much, but hard hearts do not respond to the Spirit of God without first being broken. So the Pharisees and Sadducees reject Jesus because they're so puffed up on the knowledge of this world and on being in charge. And Jesus is offering this warning to his disciples. Don't be like that. Learn from them. Learn everything you can, but stay humble. Let your heart be broken with what breaks the heart of God. So don't miss the meaning of what Jesus is trying to say. He's saying, think, use your whole brain. Take time to think about the things of God. And... There are so many distractions that surround you. Take time to focus on God, to think, to put your mind to work on understanding the mind of Christ. Who is Jesus Christ and what's He about and how is He going about accomplishing it and how do I fit in with His plan rather than operating outside of God's will? Henry Nouwen was a Catholic professor from the Netherlands. He was born in 1932. He was brilliant and he had worked his way up to having a teaching professorship at Harvard. And when it seemed like he was at the top of his game at Harvard, he suddenly left that post at Harvard, and he went to work in a group home in Toronto named Larch for mentally challenged adults. He lived among the, that community of people until his death from a heart attack in 1996. Now, he was asked, why? Why would you leave a post with all the prestige and perks of being a Harvard professor to work at obscurity among a, at a group home for mentally challenged adults? Here's what he said. He said, because my heart is growing smaller. My heart was growing smaller. I was around all those smart people, and boy, they were really smart, but my heart was getting smaller not larger. I wasn't becoming more like Christ. I mean, he later wrote a book he named called In the Name of Jesus. And he tells the story of how his heart was blessed just by being around those people that were not going to be, ever be the sharpest people in the world. And uh, the people he found in the group home and how they helped get him back to basics. And he ties the story into John chapter 21 where Jesus, remember Peter, in a spectacular way, in a public way, had denied he ever knew Jesus. Three times he did that. And so in a public forum, Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you really love me? See, head knowledge is not enough. God wants our love. And Henry Nouwen moved away from academia as a measure of his success. But here's the standard he put in its place, and I quote, did I offer peace today? Did I bring a smile to someone's face? Did I say words of healing? Did I let go of my anger and my resentment? Did I forgive? Did I love? These are real questions. I must trust that the little bit of love that I sow now will bear many fruits here in this world and in the life to come. See, head knowledge is not enough. God wants our love. So don't miss it. Check your heart and take appropriate action. Let's pray together. God, we pause before you. You can see into our hearts. You know what we're thinking. You know our word before it's on our lips. 
you know what we're hiding, you know who we're trying to deceive. You know that to be right with God, that we need a work of your grace in our hearts so that our hard hearts will break and that you can get inside of them and begin to mold them to be a place for God to live. And that's hard for us to let go. We have to trust you. So I pray that you will give us your grace and your strength and your courage, that we will be your people and we will, we will desire that breaking experience so that our lives can be filled with you. Thank you that Jesus was willing to be broken so that we might be made whole. Thank you that so many along the, the way, like a Henry Nouwen, have, have wanted to walk the way of Jesus, even if it means leaving positions of prestige and power so that his heart was growing larger for you. Help our hearts to grow larger for you this week, more tender, more compassionate, more understanding, more listening to your voice, more right in step with you. Thank you that you are calling us to be your partners and to do your work together with you. Thank you that you are our Savior. You are the man. You are the one we want in our lives. Jesus, we love you. Amen.